You're listening to the First Baptist Church of Hazel Park audio podcast. We hope that this podcast is a helpful resource in your daily walk with Christ. Now, here's today's sermon. Uh, let me uh, ask you to turn. Uh, we're going to be back in Matthew 18, but just briefly, and then we're going to be in First Corinthians, First um, Corinthians chapter five. But I do want to start with Matthew 18. We uh, we covered this, and I, I felt like it was too much to try to cover in the morning. And I also felt like this is something that is more of a topic for our church family. Uh, I'm thankful for Sunday mornings that we tend to get more people that maybe aren't members of the church, just visit the church. Uh, Sunday evening tends to be a little bit more of the people that are going to be here Sunday morning, Sunday evening, and oftentimes Wednesday evening also. So I felt like this was a topic that would fit well for Sunday evening service. And uh, it's not a fun topic, but it is a necessary topic. And... uh, so we're going to cover that. And that is the step number four from our passage this morning. Step number four is church discipline. Now, I'm teaching a membership class in my, uh, in my office this month, and we've talked about the importance of church membership. You see, without church membership, a church can't function. If we don't have membership, how do you vote on anything? How do you select leadership? Now, some churches are started by a person who declares himself the supreme leader. Okay? That's fine. It's just not a church. Because it's not a biblical picture of what a church is. Um, some churches, quote unquote, have their leadership appointed by the denomination. That also is not a New Testament model. You say, well, Paul or Paul told Timothy or to, to appoint church leaders. That was Timothy as a church planner uh, putting in place leadership into a church that was just beginning out, just beginning. I know a, a pastor of a Baptist church that recently said that when he retires, he would pick someone to replace him. That would make sure he would make sure that that guy kept doing things the way he wants them done, and that may sound strange to us, but that really is a fairly common thing that happens in churches, where pastors want to pick their successor because they want to make sure things continue being done the way that they want them to be done. Now, um, if churches are led by pastors, but churches have the authority. To govern themselves. Um, you might say, well, we're like America and we're, we're a democracy. Uh, well, first of all, the United States of America is not a democracy. Make sure you understand that it is not a democracy. It is a representative republic. It's a, it, is, it is a republic. There's a huge difference, okay? Um, we are not a democracy, and that is something that we as Americans need to understand because the culture, politicians, news channels, they keep saying democracy. We're not a democracy, but you should look into something. You should look into that um, on your own. Now, uh, we are able to govern ourselves under the leadership, not the dictatorship of the pastor and the elders and the deacons. Now, when I say deacons, also I want you to understand deacons are not nowhere. Are we told that they are leaders in the church. I think by default, if they meet the requirements in First Timothy chapter three, that they that there are people who we would look to maybe for some spiritual leadership. They ought to be good, godly men. Um, but the, the leadership in the church is the, is, is the elders. It is the pastors of the church. Now, I have no plans of going anywhere. Um, I, 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 if the Lord sees fit, then I'm here for the rest of my life, or at least the rest of my ministry. 
Um, but if I were, if God were to make it clear that he was moving me away from First Baptist Church, I would be happy to recommend some men who I think would be a good fit for our church. Men who are solid men, men who I think culturally would fit this church. But if I want to pick a man who's going to do exactly how I want it done, that shows my pride and arrogance. Not the fact that you as a body, we as a body, have the authority to choose a pastor under the direction and leadership of the Holy Spirit, of course. And so it would not be my job to determine my replacement. That would be your job to find the will of God if God were to ever move me or take me home. Now, church membership is a benefit, but it is, it is not about what my country can do for me. It's not about what my church can do for me. It's about what can I do for my church. What can you do to serve the body? And so if someone is unwilling to commit to church membership, then they should not and do not biblically have a say in how the church operates and what happens here. You don't have a vote if, you're, if, if somebody's not willing to commit to being a church member. I mentioned this morning that the church has authority in our lives. And so if a, if a visitor comes in, Praise the Lord. We want visitors to come in. We want them to hear the gospel. We want, to, want them to hear the truth. But if we have a business meeting, they have no right to participate in that business meeting. They're not a member of the body. With membership comes privileges. Right? It's a privilege to be a part of the body. But also with that comes responsibility. And when someone doesn't want the responsibility, they just want the privileges, that's not what church membership is. Now, this morning we covered Christian conflict from Matthew chapter 18. We study the first three steps of addressing someone who has sinned against us. Step one, go to that believer alone. Step two, go, to the, go with two or three witnesses. Step three, take the matter to the church. But what happens if steps one, two, and three do not resolve the situation? Well, then there is step four. Look at verse 17. It begins with step three. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man... And a publican. And so after steps one, two, I mean, none of these are fun steps, right? None of these are things that we enjoy. Like, man, I can't wait to confront that person. Uh, we just don't enjoy confrontation. And I understand that. Some people do. Um, but most, most of us are normal and we don't like confrontation. Uh, so it's this dreaded step number four. So what does that mean? If you neglect to hear the church, let him be to thee as a heathen and a publican. So we're going to talk about that, but I'm going to talk about that at the end, about how we are supposed to uh, treat that person. But first, I want to look at an example and, a, a, and guidance to church discipline. And we find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So I hope you found that. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I, I, I think that um, what we're talking about, we're talking about church discipline. There's different words for it, um, and I'll explain why I prefer church discipline, but uh, some would say excommunication. Now, that has, in, in, in some churches, that has, uh, some denominations, some religions, that has become basically you're, you're taking away their salvation. Well, we know that that's not possible. Um, excommunication simply means there is, you're, you're separating communication, you're separating communion with that person. Uh, so a church has the authority to do that. Uh, some call it disfellowshipping. Uh, in the old days, they used to call it erasing, uh, dropping. Uh, they were dropped. Uh, some would say they got churched. Anybody ever heard that? Um, we're gonna, I've heard people say we're going to church them. Okay? Um, if that's what people think of as church, I don't, I don't like that term, okay? 
I don't like excommunication. Like exclusion is another word. You're going to exclude a member from the, from the body. Uh, these are all terms that have been used. The reason I prefer church discipline is I think it most accurately portrays what we're doing as a church. We're not, ex- we're not looking to exclude someone. We're excluding them, but it's for a purpose. But really the purpose is discipline. Is it loving to discipline someone? Well, in parenting, Proverbs chapter 13, 24 tells us that if we spare the honor, if, he doesn't, if we don't correct, if we don't discipline a child, then <coughs> spare the rod. Don't say spoil the child, because the Bible says he hates his child. Okay? Scripture doesn't say he that spareth the rod hate, uh, spoils his child. The scripture says he that spareth the rod hateth his child. So if we truly love our children, we chasten them, we discipline them. Well, the same is true in a church. If we truly love someone who, and they go into sin, we as a church must discipline them. However, it's not just because we think it's necessary, it's because the Bible teaches us. Every organization has consequences or corrections for those who don't keep the policies, procedures, the rules, or whatever it is of that organization. Um, the NFL, today, I'm sure somebody did something that they're going to get fined for. Because they broke the policies of the, of the, uh, of the league. Uh, simply, if some, after a play, somebody hits a quarterback too late. Did anybody see that Lions play last week where uh, Jared Goff acted like he, he still had the ball, but he didn't? He got nailed. Uh, the other guy got a fine. Got, got, I'm sorry, he got, he got a penalty because he hit the quarterback after, long after he got rid of the ball. Uh, these, this is what happens. There's, there's consequences or penalties for all the things that we do in every organization. If you're a lawyer and you do something unethical, you can be disbarred. If you, are, um, if you do something wrong at work, you steal something from your boss or from work, you can be fired. Every organization has some type of uh, correction, some type of a, a, uh, a correction might be a fine, it might be a, a suspension, it might be a penalty of some sort, but it ultimately can come to being dismissed from the organization. Now, uh, your boss can fire you. And so I mentioned this morning that we have not had to exercise discipline in our church over the past six and a half years. But some would make the case that we should. Is it possible that there are people in our church that should have been disciplined over the last six and a half years and we haven't done it? Well, what constitutes a need for discipline? Unrepentant sin. Okay? Unrepentant sin constitutes the need for discipline. What does that include? Well, churches have different standards as to what is going to constitute discipline. There are some that are very clear. As we'll see here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Some churches have virtually no standard that would bring them to discipline a member. Some, some churches have absolutely no idea what is going on in the members' lives of their church. And they, they're not concerned about it. It's just come to church on Sunday. We don't care what kind of lifestyle you live. Just come and let's be a part of this church. That's a bad model for church membership. We must be held accountable to our church. Uh, some churches discipline because of non-attendance. And uh, if, if you don't show up for six months or don't show up for a year, they may reach out and say, hey, you haven't been here in a while. Uh, would you please consider coming back? Uh, let me ask you a question. Is it a sin not to attend church? The answer is yes. It is a sin for us to consistently not attend church. I'm not saying to miss a service. But if you are not in the, the routine and you don't see the importance of attending church, that's a sin. So those that churches that discipline because of non-attendance, I'm not going to argue with them. 
and I wouldn't debate against them. Now, our church, the policy is you become an inactive member. There's really not a lot of difference there. After six months, if you haven't attended First Baptist Church and you're a member, you become inactive. It means, basically, that you've been disciplined, although without maybe the, the strong terminology there. Um, so, we're going to look here. We looked at Matthew 18. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. There are some differences, and I want us to be aware of this. Both of these are dealing with church discipline. However... Matthew 18 starts out as a private matter, and is try, we try to keep it private as long as we can. Okay? You go to that person. Then you go between one or two, so that they're in the mouths of two or three witnesses, right? Then we take it to the church. So we try to keep it private as long as we can. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we're going to see a very public sin that everybody already knows about. There's no instruction by Paul to go through the process of Matthew 18 because the sin is very open and very public. Now, are there certain things that should and could, could and should be handled privately leading up to the public uh, church discipline? Yes. I think that there are. I think we need to be discreet. I think we need to be... Uh, careful of uh, to to keep people's uh, privacy in areas, if, especially if they're repentant. We want to keep their privacy. Uh, we want to we want to be considerate of that as much as we can. But a public sin must be dealt with publicly, and so that might mean that uh, that somebody comes before the church and just simply says, "I've sinned," or somebody uh, asks the church to forgive them for some reason. And we don't need to know the details because maybe privately it's been dealt with, okay? So if, we, if it needs to be handled publicly, it can be handled publicly. But the goal of Matthew 18 is to keep it private as long as possible. Now, let's look at verse 1 of, of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as it is not so, named as among, so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. Let's stop there. So here's the sin, the sin of the church. Uh, the church, this church at Corinth, we know that it is known for its problems. They were known for sin. They were known for disunity. But despite all their problems, listen, they were still a church. They were still a local body of baptized believers assembled together for the purpose of carrying out the Great Commission. That's to me what a definition of a church is. And they were still that. They were a church that was in error. They were a church that was sinful, but they were still a church. And the Lord had Paul write a letter. He inspired him to write a letter to that church in order to correct the, the way that they're going. When, if, if my children, let's, let me use, and I always use my kids as an example. Let's use me. When I was a kid and I did things that I shouldn't do, my parents corrected me. I never didn't become their child, right? They never said, you're no longer my child. But they did correct, my, correct me to correct my actions because they loved me. Now, Paul here, he's not the pastor of the church, but he was an apostle. The apostles had an authority that died with the apostles. Okay, Now that we have completed scripture, the church has been established, we don't have apostles today. And, uh, and so we don't have apostolic authority like they did then. So Paul wrote that he had heard that there was sin in the body, specifically this sin of fornication. Now, the particular case is one that not even the heathen, not even the Gentiles would have tolerated. And that is that a man was involved with his father's wife. The implication here, I think, is clear that he's talking about a stepmother. Now, this uh, Paul was disgusted at the sin, no doubt. Right? But this whole chapter is not about Paul's disgust with the sin, but look at verse number 2. 
And he are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he should have, that he that hath done this deed might have taken away from among you. Paul is disgusted with the sin, but he's, I think, even more disgusted with the way the church has handled it. You go, well, God, it's not my problem. That's not our problem. That's their problem. That, no, we as a church must, if we love people, must be ready to participate in in our role as authority. And to discipline those that we love. Proper, listen, proper church discipline is always about sin. Proper church discipline is always about sin. This is not about a disagreement. Well, you know what? That person thinks that we ought to have red pews, and this person thinks we ought to have gray pews. And so, you know what? We're going to fight about it. Now, that sounds ridiculous, right? But when, when churches have disagreement... It can develop into sin, right? It can develop into somebody sowing discord in the body because they don't like the red pews. It can, it can grow into that. But only, church discipline is only when someone is sinning and they have been approached and they refuse to repent of their sin. It is always about sin. So Paul Critiques their attitude towards sin. He says in verse 2, You're puffed up and have not rather mourned that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from you from among you. For I verily, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged already, as though I were present, concerning him that hath so done this deed. Now the church, they were puffed up. They were proud of themselves. And we may wonder why a church with as many problems that they had would be proud. But most people are too proud to admit their sin. Now, when you, when you think of uh, the church at Corinth, I, I wonder what you envision. Because I was trying to picture what I think of the church at Corinth. And, and sometimes we may picture the church at Corinth as kind of people who are just taking things way too casually. And they're, and, and they're just coming in the church and they're, they're getting drunk at the love feast. And, and they're doing all these, these things. And it's just you walk in there and go, man, this is just a social club. This is not really a church. And I wonder if that's the case, but I really don't think so. I think the church is, I think the church of Corinth, and here's this is my opinion, your opinion can be different, that's fine, you can totally disregard this. But I think that this is the church that had everything put together just right. The men wore the right suits, the men dressed sharply, the women were modest, the preacher preached hard, the music was just right, they, they said all the right things in their, in their music and the preaching. But there may have been people, they were so proud of themselves that that's where their sins, their, their sins stem from. You see, most of my sins stems from my pride. Most of the reasons I think it's about me. I want things, I want, I want things to be my way. And so their, their culture was very sexually immoral. And the church may have become, become accepting of things that were not acceptable to God. But they were proud of themselves. I have been in a lot of churches. That churches that we would say, you, I, I could name pastors' names and you would know who they are. See, if another church in another state is mentioning Stephen Clark, they have no idea who we're talking about, right? And so, uh, but I could mention names of, of churches, big churches, or well-known churches, or well-known pastors. And there's so much, in some of them, not all the time, there's some of them, there's so much arrogance. And there's so much pride. That, that there is so much sin in there and nobody sees it. Or they don't see it because they're so proud of themselves about the way that they act. So Paul here, he rebukes them. He rebukes them for not mourning, for not 
for not grieving over the sin that was happening in this church. You see, the man had a problem that needed to be dealt with, but there, but the church was too proud to let a scandal come out. Well, wait, so we had to keep this quiet. Many churches, many independent Baptist churches today are are broken down. They've gone from running big numbers to small numbers. They have disgraced themselves because the pastor hid the sin of his child. The pastor hid the sin of the assistant. The pastor hid the sin of the deacon's kid. The pastor hid the sin of a teacher in their school or whatever it is. And so there are churches that have been destroyed or at least uh, have destroyed the reputation because they don't want a scandal to come out. So the, the church has to deal with this problem. Maybe it was ignored. Maybe it was brushed under the rug. But Paul knew that this man was guilty from a long distance away. The church knew it too, but they ignored it. The church knew there was a problem. The leadership in the church certainly knew that there was a problem, and they ignored it. He says, I've heard about this a long way away. I know he's guilty, and you are too puffed up, and you haven't mourned over it. You see, it's not just about us dealing with sin with our self-righteousness or saying, well, we, we would never do what they've done. We've never stooped to what they've done. That, that is not what this is about because we ought to be grieving and mourning over sin in our body. And so he goes on in verse 8 to tell us why we must exercise church discipline. I'm sorry, verse 4. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together in my spirit with the power of of our Lord Jesus Christ to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven that it may that, that ye may be a new lump as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So Paul gives the command that this man was to be delivered to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. This sounds harsh. Why would we do that? Why would we throw someone to the wolves, per se? You, you see, there is a protection in being a member of a New Testament church. In my membership class this morning, I, I, told, I told those folks, I said, you need to be a member, if you're a believer, and we talked about the requirements. Here's the requirements to be a member of First Baptist Church. You must be saved, you must be scripturally baptized. And so, if, if, you, um, if you've been saved, you need to, if you've not been scripturally baptized, you need to be scripturally baptized. And you need to be a member of the church. God wants it. Whether it's this church or another New Testament church, you need to be a member of a church. Some have described this as an umbrella. That when you become a member of a church, you are under the umbrella or the protection of the New Testament church. And so what happens is we cast out. That sounds harsh, right? This is not a fun thing. But we cast that person out from under the umbrella of the church for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Church discipline is not about sending that person out for physical destruction. Although that may be a part of it. But it is about the destruction of the flesh. What's the difference? Well, this man was living in the flesh. According to the, in, in order to be living the way that he was, he had to be in the flesh. His flesh needed destruction. Romans chapter 6, verse 6 says, Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, 
that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. And so there is this picture here of the old man being crucified, the old man being destroyed. Uh, Galatians 2.20. Uh, he talks about being crucified. For there, nevertheless, I live. For I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. And so there is a destruction to the flesh. So he is turned over. Now it may include physical destruction of the flesh. If that's what, so if that's where our sin takes sin, when, when it is finished, what bringeth forth what death? Okay. Now, when sin is not addressed in the church, the sinner can become comfortable in their sin. You see, sometimes sin is acceptable in the home. That should not be acceptable in the home. So the church has to step in. In the home, I, I can tell you, uh, I used to say as a youth pastor that sometimes I felt like I was fighting the parents more than I was fighting Satan. Now, if you're a parent of the kids that I was a youth pastor, I wasn't talking about you. Um, so, but sometimes I, I felt that way. Because I would, I would go to kids with something that's clearly sinful. I'd say, you shouldn't be doing that. And they'd say, well, my parents think it's okay. Okay. Does that mean we're done? All right, well, their parents have the final authority. No, God has the final authority. Now, I can't go into their home and tell them what to do. But if there is open sin, and I'm talking open sin, known sin, it must be dealt with by the church. You see, if it's accepted by the church, then it must be acceptable to the Lord. That's how some people view it. That's how the world views it. And that's why people choose a church that fits with their moral compass. I want to believe this is okay, so I'm going to find a church that endorses this action. And so we might say, well, it's just one person. Now we could talk about Achan, right? The sin of Achan. Uh, can one person, by us, one person's sin cause problems for a whole nation? Certainly one person's sin can cause problems for a church. He says, uh, he says in verse 6, Your glory is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. So what do we do? Purge out the old leaven, that we may be a new lump. We, we must get rid of the leaven. We know leaven is a symbol for sin. And Paul commands that the sin be removed and replaced with sincerity and truth. Now, how do we treat I, this is obviously not a full exposition of this passage, okay? But I, I want us to understand what we can about church discipline from this passage. Verse 9, And I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators. You know, there was, this, there was like the precursor to 1 Corinthians. There was like 0 Corinthians or something. I don't know. Uh, Paul wrote letters that are not included in the canon of Scripture. Now, God may have moved him. God may have prodded him to write that letter. But it was not, uh, it was not Scripture, Okay? Paul says, I wrote to you an epistle not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with fornicators of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or with idolaters. For then must ye needs go out of the world. But now I have written unto you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner with such as one not to eat. So Paul here, he says, here's how, here's how you're supposed to treat a disciplined member. To company with fornicators means to have a close association with someone. So he says, I wrote to you in a previous epistle not to company with the fornicators. The, the job of the church was not to avoid 
fornicators, covetous, extortioners, and idolaters of the world. They need to hear the gospel. So he's, he's not, he doesn't say, have no association with any of them. He says, those that are in the world, this is what verse number 10 is telling us, we must go out into the world, we must share the gospel with them. But what, is, what are we supposed to do? He says, if a man is called a brother, and yet he lives one of these wicked lifestyles, Paul says not to eat with him. Now, there was a time when I would have said that that is speaking about the Lord's Supper. And I think that we should not, I think when someone is disciplined, they should not be permitted to take of the Lord's Supper in a church. But in some ancient cultures, to eat at the same table with someone was considered a show of support or partnership. So they would, they would go and they would be seen together, eating together, and that would mean, hey, they're in a common bond. They, they have some type of a, uh, a relationship or some type of a camaraderie. Uh, there's a partnership happening there. And so in verses 9 and 10, Paul is clearly differentiating between sinners of the world and sinners that are called Christians. So he says not to eat with them. That means we should not be closely associated with someone who's been disciplined by the church. Jesus said in Matthew 18, 17 at the end, But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. So that man that must be disfellowshipped, right? But is this the same as the practice of shunning? Now, shunning is a practice by many religions, that, and even some that claim to be Christians, where they avoid all interaction with the individual that has been excommunicated. Even some Baptists will practice this. As somebody has been removed from the body, they have been, however you want to put, whatever term you want to use, they've been disciplined by the church, and they say, don't even talk to them. You say, well, I've never heard of Baptist churches. I've been in Baptist churches where pastors tell you not to go talk to those people. And they will use scriptures out of context, like Philippians 4.13. Right? I can do all things. Take, take things out of context. And they'll take things out of context, like uh, uh, they, they went out from us. For if they had been of us, they would have no doubt continued with us. But they went out from us to make it manifest that they were not of us. It's not what that scripture is teaching us. Okay, that somebody who leaves the church, we, we need to shun them because they're sinning because they've left our church. So the, 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 the principle of shunning is completely unbiblical. Now, what did Jesus say? He said, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. What do we do to heathen men and publicans? We witness to them. Right? We, we, we try to win them to Christ. We love them to Christ. If this church ever has to discipline someone, we should love that person. We should love that person now. We should love that person if we find out somebody in our church is in sin. And then we should love them after they've been disciplined. And we should pray for them and, and pray that God would move in them and do whatever is necessary in their lives to bring them back in the fellowship with the Lord and with our church. So, does that mean we don't have lunch with someone who's been disciplined? Well, if having lunch with them uh, brings the impression that everything is fine and lunch is just an opportunity uh, to just to hang out and talk, then I, I question whether we should do that. But if we're meeting with someone to have lunch so that we can confront them on their sin, to encourage them and beg them to repent, then I don't think that's what Paul's teaching us about not eating with them. He means to have a close association or a partnership with them. Now, verses 12 and 13. 
For what, for what have I to, to do to judge them also that are without? Do ye not judge them that are within? But them that are without, God judgeth. Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. Here's what he's saying. We have to judge in our church. Oh, but Matthew 7, 1. Judge not that you be not judged. Yeah, don't judge by a standard you're not willing to be judged by. That's what he's teaching here. We must exercise judgment. And as a church, there may be a time, there may be times, uh, there have been times in the past and there's times in the future that we are going to have to exercise judgment. We're going to have to look at it. That doesn't mean we condemn someone, but it means that we have to judge the situation and say, is there an issue here? Does this need to be dealt with? And if it needs to be dealt with, what's the proper way to deal with this problem? You see, there's limits to our authority. Our authority, we have no authority over the world. We have no authority with those that are without. In fact, them that are without can include members of the church down the road. I, I, I talked with a pastor recently um, about an issue uh, that I knew about, and we were having a conversation, and, um, and I'm not going to get into details of that, but we were having a conversation, and I, I said to him, I said, I don't want to get involved in what you're doing as a church. It's, got, it's none of my business. You know, and he's like, he's like, well, what we're doing is, I so hey, you don't need to tell me that because you're, we're an independent church, right? We don't have to, we don't have to answer to each other. I have no authority over any other church. I do have leadership authority here at First Baptist Church along with others. And so we have to exercise judgment within the wicked person within. Now. I mentioned this morning that some reasons people don't like to go to the person who has offended them because they say things like, I don't like conflict, I don't like confrontation, they won't listen, I tried it before, it didn't work. But one big reason that I think, I think people won't is because they know the other person was right. I, you know what, that per, here's what I mean, that person, I'm upset with them. Well, why don't you confront them? Well, and we'll make an excuse, but really we know because they were right. We're wrong. I think oftentimes that's why people don't want to deal with the problem. There's no wrongdoing. We don't like what they, that they called us out on our sin. We remain angry. And we have no case to confront them. I've told you over and over, if I've offended you personally, please come to me. To my, to my knowledge, I don't, I mean, I'm sure there's people that don't like me, but I hope they're not here. Um, uh, but if I have offended you, you should come to me. Uh, and we can have a conversation. If I personally offended you because I said something careless or uh, rude or whatever, then I, I want to I apologize for that. But if I've offended you because of the gospel, because of the truth, um, maybe I said it in a bad way, I'll apologize for that. But if I said the right thing, I'm not going to apologize for that. So, when we talk about church discipline... We know that sinful men love to pervert the designs of God. Don't close your Bible yet because I'm going to turn to one more passage. We can close it, but I'm going to have you open it again. Um, church discipline. Some have abused this loving practice. Some pastors have led their churches to discipline someone who they have a contention with. Someone who says, Pastor, I'm not sure that, that this is the direction we should go as a church because of this or because of that. And you go, well, and they get the deacons, they get the leadership and uh, because the pastor in many times is, is kind of a dictator and they say, we need to discipline that person. And they kick the person out of the church. You see, some people have deserved to be disciplined, but the pastor led the church to do it in anger instead of love. Um, 
there, there have been very few, but there was a, there's been a couple times where somebody has come to join our church and they were under discipline of another church. And I said, you need to go back and apologize to that church. Well, you don't know. I said, listen, you're under discipline of that church where two or three are gathered. Matthew chapter 18, that passage, that context, where two or three are gathered together in my name, where two or three agree on something, the context of that is church discipline, right? If it's bound in heaven, if it's bound on earth, it's bound in heaven, if that's the case. So what do we do? Well, if somebody comes to join our church from a church where they have been disciplined, and it was, as Charles Spurgeon said, the keys were properly used to turn the lock, okay? If that happens, we, we are not doing that person a favor by allowing them to join our church when they're under discipline from another church. And so there have been times I say, you need to go back and tell the other church, you need to go apologize. Well, I don't know if they'll listen to me. As I mentioned this morning, it doesn't matter. You try it. You go back to that pastor and say, I'd like to apologize for the way I did it. Not because of what? Not because of where I stood, if you stood in the right place, but because of the way you handled it. So sometimes people deserve to be disciplined. Now, if I've also known people who go, they're under discipline from one church, and they just jump to another church. That church accepts them, knowing they're under discipline. I know of a pastor that had resigned and was under discipline from his home church. His home church set up a, a plan uh, of restoration for him, and he didn't want to do it, so he went to another church. And that other church accepted him, even though he was under discipline from his, other, from his home church. Discipline is no fun. But just like discipline to a sinful child, it is necessary for those in unrepentant sin. Discipline promotes holiness in the church. And it promotes a, restore, a restoring of holiness to that sinner that is caught in sin. It's important and it is loving. 19th century pastor John L. Dagg wrote this. When discipline leaves a church, Christ goes with it. Now, I don't think right now, I don't have anybody that I'm going to say, hey, we need to discipline this person. There, there are people, I'm just going to be honest with you, there, there, are, there is some sin that uh, it's heavy on my heart. We're praying <coughs> through it, being patient, um, hoping and praying that we don't have to do that. But part of the reason I wanted to preach this is because it may be coming for our church. And we're not going to hide it. We're not going to stream it if it happens. We're just praying. And I want you to do this. I want you to pray. You say, I don't know who you're talking about. You shouldn't, because it's a private matter. Um, I want you to pray that God will restore this person, that this person will repent, and we won't have to take that step. Turn over to 2 Corinthians. We're going to close with this. 2 Corinthians chapter number 2. I want you to see this, because this is pretty cool. I don't want to end on a bad note. Okay? Look at verse verse 1. But I determined this with myself, that I would not come again unto you in heaviness. For if I make you sorry, who is he that then maketh me glad, but the same which is made sorry by me? And I wrote the same unto you, lest when I came I should have sorrow from them of whom I ought to rejoice, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. Listen, for out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote unto you with many tears, not that ye should be grieved, but that ye might know the love which I have more abundantly unto you. Now listen. But if I have caused grief, but if any have caused grief, he hath not grieved me but in part, that I may not overcharge you all. Sufficient to such a man is this punishment, which was inflicted of many. All right? Stop there. 
punishment that was inflicted of many. That shows that this church had acted in a democratic manner. It was not the it was not the pastor, it was not the elders, but it was the church, the many, that inflicted punishment. Verse seven. So that contrarywise ye ought, the, ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with with overmuch sorrow. Wherefore I beseech you that you would confirm your love toward him. The discipline, I believe that he's speaking about this man in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Most commentators believe that's what he's talking about. That he wrote to them. He was sorrow. He wrote with tears. When Paul was, was penning 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he's telling them that they need to cast this man out. He wasn't doing it in anger. He wasn't doing it with an arrogant attitude. He was doing it with tears. And he said, you have to do this. You must turn him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. And he said, you've got to do this. He wrote it with tears. And now he comes and he says, here's what you need to do. You need to forgive him. Apparently the man had repented. The man had returned. And he says, you need to forgive him, comfort him, lest he should be sorrowed up with overmuch joy. What happens when there is repentance is we forgive. And we move on. Now, restoration takes time, right? We forgive, but that restoration, now restoration church fellowship can happen immediately. But but problem, you know, hey, you know what? If somebody steals your money, you don't leave your wallet with them next week, right? So there are, you have to build up, uh, you have to build up the, the restoration there. But he says, he says, wherever, before I beseech you all, that you would confirm your love toward me. So we love our church family. We love them when they're in sin. We love them when we discipline them, and we love them when they return. That's the process of church discipline. Again, I hope and pray we never have to do it as a, as a, church, as a church body. But if we have to, we must, re- we, we must mourn, we must grieve. We ought to be mourning and grieving over sin right now. And sin in our church. We must mourn and grieve that, that people have lived that way, people are living that way, and we as a church must... Be prepared to take that dreaded step forward. And I I hope and pray we never have to. And I want you to pray that the Lord will work in the hearts of those that he needs to work in. Thank you for joining us today on the First Baptist Church of Hazel Park audio podcast. If you have questions or would like to know more about First Baptist Church, visit us online at fbchazelpark.com.